Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, a 26-year veteran of college admissions and college counseling with now 11 years under my belt at College Coach. Seriously, (laughs) my anniversary of working full-time at College Coach was June 24th, and I began in 2008. So I just thought I'd celebrate all that with uh, those of you listening. Um, All right, now on to our show today. Um, Any of you rising high school seniors? Are you maybe wondering about whether you should take the SAT or the ACT again, or both, or neither, or maybe even SAT subject tests? For our second segment, my colleague Mary Suyun, formerly of the Barnard Admission Office and an even longer-term college coach veteran, will be discussing testing for the rising high school senior. For our third segment, I'll be talking with Kenan Dick, another college coach veteran who previously worked for Swarthmore and Drexel admission offices, and we'll be talking about how institutional priorities impact the admission process, in other words, really impact who gets in. But first, I'm talking with Tara Piantanita Kelly, college finance consultant here at College Coach, previously of the Rochester Institute of Technology, among other colleges, about the financial aid process for business owners. So welcome, Tara. Hi, thank you, Sally. All right. So what does owning a business have to do with the financial aid process? I mean, what what makes, what would be being a business owner as opposed to being somebody who's paid with a salary? What would be different about that? Well, it's it's because, you know, the financial aid forms, they collect information on um, the family's income and assets, and, you know, they use that to determine their ability to pay for college expenses in the coming year. But if someone in the household has a, a business, then this could affect both the family's income as well as their assets, just that business alone. So, um, you know, in general, the more income and assets that a family has, the higher their perceived ability to pay for college and the less eligible the student is for need-based aid. And a family-owned business or a business uh, can really impact both of those. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like owning a business might be bad for financial aid. Is that true? or? Well, in some cases it is, but not necessarily in all cases. So I'm going to kind of give you um, a, a for instance. So let's look at owning a business both from an input, income standpoint and then from an asset standpoint. So, you know, for income purposes, let's say that there's a family with two working parents and one parent works um, for a company as an employee, gets a paycheck, gets wages, and the other parent has their own business. The the parent who owns their own business should be able to write, you know, reduce some of their um, taxable business income by writing off some legitimate business expenses and maybe even some depreciation. And, you know, if that parent's business maybe even shows a loss for the year, that could offset some of the other parents' income from work, which would then lower their income taxes and increase the student's eligibility for need-based financial aid. So in that case, it would be a good thing. Um, For assets, the FAFSA wants to know about the family's cash savings and checking accounts and investments, and then they want to know the net worth or the equity of businesses and investment farms that the family has. But it goes on to exclude any family farms or or businesses that are family-owned and operated. And if the business has fewer than 100 uh, employees or full-time equivalents, then the assets for that family-owned and run business or, or for that family farm is excluded. So it's even if, let's say, you have a, you know, there's a family that has um, a farm with that has fewer than uh, 100 full-time employees. And even if that farm is worth, let's say, you know, $10 million, that asset is not even counted on the the FAFSA form at all. Mm, All right. All right. So owning a business is good for financial aid. Well, you know, sometimes, sometimes it is, but not always. So I I was really careful to say that the FAFSA excludes um, small family-owned and operated businesses and family farms. But the other financial aid form, the CSS profile used by about 300 schools, that does not exclude 
those as assets. So uh, any 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 business uh, that the family owns, whether it's a small business or not, any farm that the family owns, those are considered assets on the CSS profile form. Okay. All right. So you keep saying net worth of the business. What what do you mean by that? Oh well. So the the, the FAFSA. Uh, at, you know, they describe it differently than the profile. So the, the FAFSA says in order to come up with the net worth of your business, you're going to take the current value of the land and buildings and machinery and, you know, inventories and equipment, and you're going to total all of that up, and then you're going to deduct any debt that's owed on it or where it was used as a collateral. So, you know, a mortgage or a, you know, business line of credit or something along that. So it's the, the current value of everything minus the current debt on it. So that's how the FAFSA uh, uh, says, you know, it says to calculate the net worth of a business. The CSS profile uh, that goes about it a little bit differently. They say they want the current market value, which is, they define this as the price the business could be sold for today, including all the business, the land and buildings and inventory and whatnot, minus the, the current amount owed for the mortgage and other related debt. So it's a little bit different, very similar, but a little bit different, the way the okay. FAFSA wants you to calculate it as opposed to the profile. Okay. All right. So if a family has a business, what do they need to do when they are preparing to apply for financial aid? Well, if it is one of those you know, small family-owned businesses where you know, they're not going to have to include the business assets in that section, and if the student is just applying for schools that require the FAFSA, then they don't really have to do anything different from other families, um, you know, who have small family-owned businesses or, or families who don't have uh, those businesses. But for the families whose businesses don't qualify as one of those small family-owned businesses, um, or if the student is applying to schools that require the CSS profile form, then it's possible that they're going to have to gather a lot of information on that business um, before they sit down and do the forms. So, you know, for, for the FAFSA, it's not that bad. It just says, you know, what is the net worth of the business, that, that total value minus all debt or, you know, essentially the equity in the business. So that's all it really wants. But the profile can ask just a ton of questions like, you know, is, this, is the business a primary source of income or is it just in addition to other work? Um, you know, how many businesses do you own or operate? You know, what type of business is it? Is it a sole proprietorship? Is it a partnership? Is it a corporation? You know, um, do there are there other family members that um, have ownership of this, or do you pay any other family members a salary for this? So there's just a lot of information that the profile can ask. So uh, for families that do own a business and where the student is going to be applying to schools that require the, the profile, the families are probably going to have to do a kind of a good bit of information gathering before they complete the profile. And, uh, and then if the school uh, that they're, the student is applying to, if they get in and the school wants to verify the information that's on the profile, then the family may have to copy and sign their entire you know, personal income tax return, including all of their schedules, as well as the business tax return and schedules as well. So, you know, it can just take, it can just take a lot of time. That's all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So how much does a family-owned business count against a student for financial aid? Well, that's kind of the, the nice thing is that on the on the FAFSA side, um, it's a it's a very you know cut and dry concrete kind of percentage somewhere between four and six percent. So it's really not that bad if it's if it's a parental owned asset for the FAFSA. Let's say you know it, it's um, uh, you know five hundred thousand dollars in in business value and, and assets, you know net worth of the business. So um, let's see, four percent of that would be about. $20,000 and uh, 6% of that would be about what $30,000. So that asset alone would raise the student's expected family contribution by between, what did I say, $20,000 and $30,000 for that coming year. Um, the CSS profile, it, they don't give us those numbers. So um, the, the best way to kind of determine if the CSS profile would uh, really have what kind of impact it would have on that, the families can either go to each individual school's net price calculator and run that to see uh, what kind of impact the business might might have on it, and or they could run an expected family contribution calculator. Um, there's one on the College Board's website, and they could put in the, the um, asset information and run some calculations to see, uh, you know, just what kind of impact it might have. Okay. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Tara. Yes, it's my pleasure. It's a complex kind of a thing, though. So yeah, <laughs> do without a homework a doubt. if you're. <laughs> like I said, I've been doing right. this a long time, and like when you guys, the finance experts, come on here, I'm like, I did not do any of that most of the time. So, <laughs> all right, excellent. <laughs> okay, thanks again. All right, so now we'll be taking a short break, but when we return, I'll be talking with Mary Suyun about testing strategies for rising seniors. So please stick around. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, we'll now be talking to Mary Sue Yoon about testing for rising seniors. Welcome, Mary Sue. Thanks for having me, Sally. All right. So if we're, when you're working with seniors, like say you're working mm-hmm. with a senior right now, Um, Mm -hmm. what are you advising them when it comes to their testing? And I know there's a lot of different scenarios, so let's just kind of like dig in and go through all the different possibilities. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, So, I mean, I think that there's a few different scenarios that seniors could be in at this point. Um, Ideally, they would be happy with where their testing is and done, and so we don't really need to talk about that one so much, but, you know, that's, that's a great place to be in, and then you can kind of move on to other parts of the application. Um, but for other seniors, maybe they um, have taken some testing, but they're not really quite happy with their results yet, and they're considering some retesting in the fall. Or for some, they may not have taken any testing yet, and so um, they need to kind of figure out when they will do that testing in order to meet some application deadlines. So I guess, um, should we start first with talking about sort of the one who's done some testing, but they're not totally done yet? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start because that's the trickier one. Obviously, if you haven't done any testing, well, you need to get going, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah. Let's, let's talk about the ones that are a little trickier. Yeah, so there are some students, of course, who um, maybe have taken some of their testing in their junior year. Uh, they feel 
okay with their testing, but maybe they feel like based on some practice testing that they are doing or some, you know, some assessment that they're thinking of, um, that they may have a, a few more points left in their, their testing uh, arsenal um, that they haven't quite reached yet. Um, so for those kind of students, um, I would start, it, start to try and assess, okay, where are we now and where would you like to be? Sort of what's your goal score for the colleges that you're looking at? And trying to look at them within the space of the colleges that are starting to get on their, their short application list of where they're actually applying and where are they in that college's range. Um, and so first I guess we would sort of see, okay, how far off of that range are they? And uh, what would be sort of the steps if uh, that they would be taking to retest in the fall? Is it something where they just want to try one more time, but they don't expect to put a whole lot of time in over the summer on preparing for another retest? Or is it something where they really hadn't done a lot of preparation in the past and they want to retest and they expect to prep um, more uh, strenuously over the summer um, in preparation for some fall testing. So there are only a few more test deadlines left before, um, so testing dates left, I should say, before some application deadlines um, for students who are considering early action or early decision applications. Oftentimes those are November 1st deadlines. So um, really there's just a couple more SAT dates and a, a couple more ACT dates left until um, a student would be able to get those tests, those tests done uh, and receive back in order to send in with those November 1st applications. Um, so I think it's a good idea to kind of assess where they are, where they need to be, um, and how is it best to spend that time. Um, you know, I have had students say, I'm going to buckle down and, and, you know, study 10, 15 hours a week on the SATs for between here and August. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think, is that really worth the investment in that point? If the SAT prep is not really something you can put on your application as an extracurricular activity, um, but if your other option, instead of doing all that SAT prep, um, was to do something really engaging and interesting this summer, then that in some cases might be the better choice um, because it might be an opportunity for the student to kind of shine in another way. So you kind of have to do a little bit of analysis here of sort of what's the benefit of going for more testing um, versus letting the testing lie where it is. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's some of my initial thoughts on it and kind of how to start thinking about it. Um, yeah. I mean, I was on the phone the other day with um, the mother of a, of a an 11th grader and she was talking about, or actually a, a rising 11th grader, you know, wrapping up mm -hmm. 10th grade. And she's like, so when do we start testing? Like I was thinking October and I'm like, well, let's talk about what you're, you know, so she was obviously like very hyper mm -hmm. about testing and that's not the topic today but just so everybody knows you don't have to start until spring of your junior year you don't mm -hmm. have to start in the fall but one of the things that that conversation led to is she said that well the more time she takes it the more uh, likely she is to get an 800 and that's really mm -hmm. what everybody's shooting for and I said well you don't have to have an 800 and right. you need to really think about like how much study like, let's say theoretically she could get to an 800, which I just don't think everybody can. She was operating mm -hmm. under the assumption that if you study enough, you can. I really do not see any evidence that that's true. But right. she was talking about students who were just studying, like, you know, they had 770s, basically, and they're putting mm -hmm. in all this extra time to study to get an 800. So mm -hmm. how do you advise your students in that situation? Oh yeah, um, I would all I would say that there's a number of students I've talked to over the years who have said, "Oh, you know, uh, um, I really need to get an 800. I have a a 1550 or something like that." And I always say, "Okay, like let's step back here and get some perspective. First of all, that score is amazing for many, 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 many students, including for students looking at." They're very top, most highly selective colleges in the country. Um, and 
from my experience as an admissions officer, there wasn't any sort of magic thing that happened when a student had an 800 or a perfect 1600 on their testing. Um, we sort of looked at the testing within the context of the entire application, and, and frankly, once a student reached a certain threshold, there was no extra bonus points given if they had uh, an 800 versus a, a 770. I mean, that there's it's once they were kind of within the range of what we were looking for at that school, um, it didn't it didn't mean there's plenty of students that we denied who had perfect SAT scores. So it doesn't mean that that's sort of the golden ticket uh, to get into a college, which I think sometimes it is. Um, perhaps perceived to be. Um, mm-hmm. I have heard lots of myths and rumors about this over the years. There is nothing special about getting that, you know, going for that perfect score if you are already in that high range uh, of testing already. Yes, there's going to be a difference between, um, you know, uh, several hundred points lower, a 1,000 on the SATs versus a 1,600, but once you get up to that upper tier of testers, um, there's not going to be a difference between a student who is very close to that 1600 and a, and a student who actually has a 1600 or an 800 on an individual test. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And similarly with the ACT, there's no difference yes. Yes. To, between a 35 and a 36. And for most schools, probably a 34 is going to yeah. be high enough, yeah. you know, even at the, even at the top level of selectivity. Um, right. Yeah. So what And I always think, you know, how could they spend that time so much better in doing something interesting that they would report in their application, you know? So sometimes the students who are such high achieving test takers, if if all of this test prep has been done at the expense of extracurricular activities or other more interesting things that they could spend their time doing, then to me that's actually not the right balance of what they should be going for um, Mm -hmm. during their high school experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I talk to parents sometimes who say, well, just make them study harder. And I really have to talk to them about, well, what's the opportunity cost here? They can't do everything. They need to sleep. You know, they, you want them to be happy, productive individuals. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually pretty blunt with them that if you're just, that this is not where you're going to see the impact actually. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, in general, um, I mean, it's somewhat similarly, but like, let's even say with a student who's testing at 1200, but mm-hmm. they've taken it like three times already, you know, the SAT mm-hmm. or the ACT, like they've really, and they've given it their all and they're like, I'm going to try it one more time. Like, mm-hmm. what do you, what do you advise them in, in that situation? So in that kind of situation, um, particularly if their aspirations are, far higher than, than where they are right now. Say a student has a 1,200, the schools they're looking at, they would really like to get at least into the 1,400s or higher, um, and they've taken it three times already. I, I will sometimes have a, a fairly frank discussion with the student and say, you know, what are you going to do different in this last time testing that you haven't already done in your preparation? And if the answer is that they have done a lot of preparation already, then um, I would say, you know, it's unlikely that things are going to change between a third and a fourth test or sometimes even a second and a third test um, if you're not doing anything different. But that doesn't mean that I would say to then spend all of your hours studying for that. It, it, I, in how many years have I been doing this? A lot, a lot of years, let's say. <laughs> um, about uh, 12 years or so. Um, the, I haven't seen students who have... Um, raise their scores considerably in a third or a fourth administration. You know, it's, maybe it goes up 20 points, but it's not, it's, it would be incredibly rare to see a student suddenly go up 200 points, you know, the fourth time that they took the exam. Mm-hmm. And I think at some point um, you just kind of have to say, okay, the testing is what it is. Let's concentrate on other parts of the application that I feel like might have more impact and sometimes it's also a hard conversation of let's also just make sure that the list that you're looking at of colleges is within the right range um, for where your academic profile is at this point. Um, so that's a tough conversation to have, but I also think it's better to have that conversation than to find out in the spring of your senior year that, you know, you got a whole lot of no's and you don't have a whole lot of choices. Uh, of where you can go. Um, so I think give it your best shot and, and test and 
it's fine to retest somewhat, but at some point you have to say, here is what my testing is, and I need to move forward, and maybe moving forward is uh, still applying to sometimes those schools or maybe looking at some test optional schools if you feel like that testing does not really truly reflect your abilities at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think even the college board itself has data that says after the third time, they just don't see improvements. So I think, yeah, yeah, so they're like maybe up to three times might be worth your time. Um, And I think I've occasionally seen a student where there was a significant bump. But after that third time, I've really never seen it. Um, Mm -hmm. The only exception to that would be if a student took it way too early, like, you know, when they were still in Algebra 2 or something, like they weren't ready Mm -hmm. in terms of math and they shouldn't have been taking it early in the first place, you know, so. um, Right. Yeah. All right, what about um, SAT subject tests? I mean, one of the things that I'm also seeing, not as often, but, you know, like um, I've seen students who, they're not really even applying to schools that need SAT Mm -hmm. subject tests, but, you know, they're like, well, it's recommended, so I think I should right. do it. Or they said they would look at them, and maybe it's that extra edge. Like, what do you what do you think about the SAT subject test at this point for, like, a rising senior? Right. Again, I think you have to do that, that cost-benefit analysis and how much, it, how much time it would take for you to feel confident in taking those subject tests if you haven't taken them already. Um, and whether it is something that is truly needed for your application list. Um, For schools that recommend them, not require them, the recommendation is there for – it's just a recommendation. It's not a requirement. If it was a requirement, they would have said it was a requirement. And so for colleges that I worked at when it was recommended, um, that truly meant that we didn't – hold it against a student if they didn't submit those scores. Uh, I would rather see a student if you're sort of looking, you don't have any schools that have it required, and actually, frankly, there's a very small list of colleges that actually require subject tests these days. So if you're down to a list of schools that are mostly ones that recommend it or aren't um, looking at the subject test at all, I would probably say in most cases it's better to not take the subject test and to concentrate your time on doing really a thorough job on your applications and make sure that your extracurricular activities and your academics are really on point um, and just kind of steer away from the subject test at this point. Um, There are some exceptions to that, as there are to everything in admissions, but generally uh, I would say that the subject testing is... It's like many things in the application, it's a part of it, but it's a very, very small part compared to the overall look at the application in terms of academics and activities and essays and the other things that we would see. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, and so I want to close out by just letting people know when the final dates are for all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, for the SAT, it's August 24th and October 5th. And then uh, if you if some schools, even if you're applying early, will also take a November 2nd test date. So not that much time before those early deadlines. Uh, for the ACT, it's September 14th and October 26th. And remember, usually you have to register a full month at least mm-hmm. before the test date. So um, so get on it if you do need to test again. And if you don't, well, then you don't need to worry about it. So that's the good news. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, all right. Thanks so much, Mary Sue. Thank you, Sally. Okay, so we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, I'll be welcoming Ken and Dick to discuss how institutional priorities, that is to say the priorities that colleges and um, universities have when they're trying to develop their class, how those will impact admission. Uh, But first, I wanted to put in a good word for getting in sponsor, Green Chef. So Green Chef is a USDA certified organic company that makes eating well easy and affordable with plans to fit every kind of lifestyle. It's a basically it's a meal kit delivery service and the plans include paleo, plant powered, which means vegan and vegetarian, pescatarian, keto, gluten-free, and omnivore. Um, I tried their paleo plan. I was lucky enough since I'm doing this ad today, they actually um Um, let me try it for free. They delivered two large boxes, enough for a hearty meal for four, uh, to my front porch a couple of weeks ago. My meal kits were for Thai coconut chicken soup, beet salad with sausages, and pan-seared salmon with dill on a bed of kale. All the necessary ingredients were there, pre-proportioned, wholesome, and high-quality 
And honestly, just as important, the meals were really easy to prepare. That's important to me. I'm an okay cook. I'm not a great cook. Uh, <laughs> but they were very easy and they were delicious, like really delicious. Um, and it was pretty cool because I actually tried a dish. I'd never thought to have um, a salad with beets and sausage together, and it was amazing. So I tried a brand new recipe, but I also tried a dish that I probably wouldn't have tried otherwise. Um, in addition, I think there's some really good news here. Getting in listeners have a special offer for a total of $75 off. That is $25 off for each of your first three boxes. You can go to greenchef.us. So green chef, one word, dot U.S. forward slash college coach 75. So again, that's green chef dot U.S. forward slash college coach 75. All right. We'll be back after this break. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Um, hi, Kenan. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Hello, Sally. All right. So today we are talking about um, how institutional priorities impact an admission office and the kinds of decisions that we make in college admission. So first, let's define what we, what we mean by institutional priorities, because that's a kind of an insider term. Mm-hmm. Would you like me to jump in on that? <laughs> yeah, sorry. I should have said instead of okay. let's, I should have said, could you define institutional priorities? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think it takes a, a, a number of different forms, but I think as it uh, translates to admissions, it's basically um, what the college or the university needs to get out of their freshman class. So uh, the different mix of uh, students and student types and characteristics, et cetera, that are going to allow it to um, to achieve its mission, right, and to, to do what it needs to do as as a community. 
Um, and so how that translates often for admissions people is that, you know, once they get um, oftentimes the iPads report um, through uh, the you know, the dean's office and the president's office, etc. Then they come to admissions and say, "Okay, here are the needs for the university for this year," and then it's our job to to make sure that those needs are met. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, what are some of the um, what are some of the different elements? Like, I think everybody's heard of you know af- athletes uh, might be an institutional priority. What are some of the others that? Um, the colleges might be looking for? Like I was thinking we'd sort of give a list and then we could start going through them individually, like exactly what they mean. Sure. And, you know, certainly with the uh, the recent uh, news uh, that we've had, you know, athletes are, are kind of at the top of that list or in terms of our awareness of how this all works. But uh, in addition to that, there, you know, are more simple needs, just like, you know, we need a French horn player or we need um, greater enrollment for specific uh, majors. So when I was working at Swarthmore College, for instance, you know, engineering was almost always a, a institutional need that we had to try to fulfill. Um, there will be things like uh, scholarship pools that we have to make sure have you know the right number of applicants that are qualified for those scholarships. There may be development um, issues. There may be uh, in-state and out-of-state uh, tuition balances that you have to try to strike. Uh, diversity is always usually in- included in that in its, in its numerous forms. Um, your balance between males and females, um, you know, uh, on-campus or off-campus ratios, those kinds of things are all part of that mix that we often will talk about in terms of institutional priorities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's pretty broad. I mean, I think everybody, I think people used to talk about diversity because of the recent scandal. They're more aware of athletes, um, but there's a lot more than that. And I just want to clarify, by the way, when you say we need a French horn player, it's not that every year every college needs a French horn player. So I just want to make sure people don't think French horn is magic. It's just that one year it might be French horn, next year it might be flute, next year it might be we're full. We don't need any, you know, <laughs> like feel free to take musicians, but it's not a priority right now. Um, exactly. So let's, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so let's, ten years in Swap okay. where we only needed one French horn player, so it's not a not a common thing, but that's a great thing. Right. Right, right. So let's discuss alumni, because that's another one where I think I think some people think it carries a huge amount of weight. Other people think it might carry no weight. Like what what was your experience with that? Um, the way that I would describe that for, for, you know, when I was working at Drexel and Swarthmore, the way that I would describe that influence is that if you were the an applicant who was a child of an alum, alumni, then you would get the full review, right? You would be given um, every opportunity for your application to shine, um, no matter you know how what relative strength um, your application was within the application pool. We were going to give you that you that you um, could take in order to uh, to shine in the um, in the committee room. So I think for them, it was just giving them that extra effort to make sure that um, we had dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's to make sure that uh, the application was given its its fold. Um, but it wasn't the kind of uh, push that I think um, that it sometimes is in some uh, schools, A, and then B, um, that I think that parents uh, hope it's going to be in the application group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it's, and honestly, it's important to note that as a school becomes more selective, um, you know, sometimes parents of alumni, or I should say alumni parents, can be very disappointed that their kid's not going to get in because, while it does mean, like you said, they're going to be dealt with very carefully, all other things being equal, it certainly is helpful, but it's not going to get in a kid who just is now not at kind of the typical level of a student who's admitted mm-hmm. to that school. Yeah. Um, it, what about being... Exactly. Yeah. What about being a donor? Like, um, I think some people think, like, I've had people say, well, I don't understand why my son didn't get into XYZ Highly Selective School. We were donating, you know, $50,000 a year uh, for the last four years. So we would have thought that would have been enough. What was your experience with that? That's a great question. Um, and I think that the you know, the issue with, the, with with that situation is that for the parents where they, they hope it's going to matter, 
um, are typically the schools where it doesn't matter that much. Um, and you have to give a lot of money <laughs> in order to kind of move that needle. Um, and so basically, you know, even at, at small Swarthmore, right, um, you know, we only had two donors that we really had to keep an eye out for. So Eugene Lang and Jerry Kohlberg uh, were the kind of the two. I mean, they have multiple buildings on campus, um, have given multiple millions of dollars. And, you know, those are the ones that we kept an eye out for. Uh, but if it's $50,000 a year or $100,000 a year, you know, we would do our best not to upset you, but it's not going to change the decision. Mm-hmm, what that would mm-hmm. usually result in is that someone from development would call you ahead of time and just give you a heads up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to note, I mean, what you have to do is think about what's the size of the endowment at these schools already, right? So right. if the size of the endowment is already in, you know, multiple millions or billions in the cases of places like Harvard, uh, 50,000 mm-hmm. is going to do nothing. I mean, that's a dime right. to you and I. That's really like literally yep. like you gave me a penny and said, here, will you do me a favor for that penny? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's just, <laughs> it's just it really, but yeah, like at the same time, they are aware of those kinds of relationships. And so they are going to try and be gentle, but it will not impact the decision itself. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into kind of the better known ones. And one of these is it can be a kind of a sticky topic. So I think we should just acknowledge that up front. I think there's a lot of myths about it. And so I'm really looking forward to us kind of busting some of those myths and talking about uh, the role that diversity does play um, in college admissions. So, um, so let's start with, you know, how might colleges and universities think about diversity overall. I think everybody kind of knows about maybe underrepresented students of color, you know, who are maybe African-American or, um, you know, Latinx, Hispanic. Um, but there are other kinds of diversity. So let's kind of talk about that as well. Yeah. And, you know, and the, you know, basically the, you know, our perspective when I was working at Swarthmore and, and, you know, it was certainly part of our mission to, to try to develop a class that was as diverse as possible. And yes, that, that meant, you know, um, ethnic and racial diversity to a certain extent, but then there was also, um, other aspects that, that we were looking for as well. So I know we talked about, um, you know, an example of a, a student from Homer, Alaska who, um, you did like, you know, hunting and trapping for a summer job, I believe, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. And it's just like, those are the kinds of ECs that you just don't see anywhere else in the application pool, right? And they come to you with a, with a, just a, a set of life experiences and perspectives that you're not going to have elsewhere in the classroom. And so it, it's that kind of diversity of experience as well that is part of, of what we're trying to, to add to the richness of our um, of our school. And so, um, in that, in multiple facets, um, you know, and it, at Swarthmore, it was a fairly liberal campus. So students who were fairly conservative, uh, conservative rather, are also part of that diversity, right? And so we just, we want to have as many different people who, um, in their lives are used to doing and, and living in different ways that are going to contribute to that discussion and that experience base on campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember, um, I actually had a student who was part of the Latter-day Saints church. She was a Mormon, uh, lived, mm-hmm. but lived not in Salt Lake city or one of the cities lived in rural Utah, very small community, very small high school. Um, and because of that small high school, and this was even like pre-internet, this is how old I am. Like the internet was going, but you didn't have as many, um, opportunities on there. Um, you know, really his class, what was available to him to take in terms of classes was really limited, but he was doing independent study in the classics. He loved the classics. He wrote this wonderful um, essay about his interest in the classics and kind of ancient Greek and Latin. And he was clearly from the recommendations, not a student that they were used to seeing in that high school, you know, like he was like Mm -hmm. a real intellectual in a place that, you know, certainly plenty of smart kids there, but that kind of like just real intellectualism was really unusual there. Like he really stood out and let's face it, he actually would have stood out most places, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, 
And so even though his curriculum was weaker than we would have taken, we knew that wasn't his fault. Um, and his test scores were honestly a little bit lower as well. But we thought, this kid is so interesting and so different for us. And so, you know, we, we, and we felt like he was the real deal, you know, like his intellectualism had really come from just this burning internal, um, like curiosity and interest. So we admitted him. And really, I would say that he was a diversity pick. I mean, there's no way he would have known that. Um, but that is really why we admitted him. Um, you know, he was just such a like such an unusual kid for us. Also at University of Chicago, by the way, I don't know if they're still doing this now. I want to be very clear. It's a new dean and the institutional priorities may have also shifted. And the dean is influential as to like who gets picked as well. Um, you know, we really kept an eye out for like first generation kids from uh, rural communities in downstate Illinois. You know, we, we wanted to see more of those if we could, that were sort of ready for a place like Chicago. So, so diversity, we defined it pretty broadly. Yeah, we did as well. And, and kind of a lot of the, there's, I think, a lot of similarities between what you were doing in Chicago and what Swarthmore was doing as well. Um, so we, we had, you know, we had geographic locations. Um, we had a specific scholarship that was attributed to uh, Lower Delaware, where you'd have a lot of students who, in those communities, were kind of a fish out of water, right? That were kind of that true intellectual that, um, you know, the high schools kind of didn't know really what to do with. Um, and those were the kinds of kids that we were trying to, you know, to kind of encourage to come to a place like Swarthmore. Mm-hmm. All right. So that being said, obviously, we did prioritize in addition, um, like I said, underrepresented students of color. So not all students of color are underrepresented on college campuses, but some are. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of how one of the big myths out there is that there are quotas. This I want to be very clear is a myth, Kenan. And so I'd like you to kind of mm-hmm. talk about how that worked at your schools as well. Exactly. And it's, um, there was never a number, right? You would never have, like, we need X amount of um, any type of student. But they were, again, they're institutional priorities. So they're, you know, if we have students who are qualified, who um, look good in a number of different ways and brought these characteristics, then we're going to give that student an extra hard look. And so, um, so we try to include um, as many uh, students that we're trying to, you know, um, increase our numbers for, um, from these categories, as many as the application pool would provide for us. But, um, but as you pointed out, there was never a number. In some years, you would have, you know, more students uh, from different categories than others. And uh, so some years it worked well, and other years it just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you have to kind of redouble your recruiting efforts. So I think that, um, yeah, and, it, and again, it's, it's part of what we're trying to um, you know, create a community where you had a real range of, of different perspectives. And that was a key ingredient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just want to restate again, no one's admitted who isn't qualified. I mean, if, if, we, if there was mm-hmm. a student from one of these groups that we really wanted, we gave them a hard look, we gave them every chance. But if we really just didn't feel like they were qualified to do the work and to thrive, then they were not admitted. And I just, I can't stress that enough because that is one of the myths that actually, I'm just going to be honest here, I get really angry at, you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. like the quota myth and the not qualified myth is really, that's just absolutely not true. So, um, right. All right. So the other big category um, is athletes. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that that works very differently from some of the things that we've talked about previously. So how did that work? And actually, I think it's kind of funny. Like, I was sort of surprised. I'd come from Reed, um, where we really didn't have sports teams. So athletics was zero influence on the admission process. I mean, we, you know, it was a good solid extracurricular, uh, but it wasn't any better than theater or anything like that. Like, we didn't, you know. And then I went to Whittier, where really, like, if you're, you know, wasn't super selective anyway. So there was a little bit of extra attention paid to a recruited athlete, but it didn't have this big impact in the admission process. Then I go to Chicago, highly selective and supporting a number of sports teams. And even though it's D3, it does have an impact. So, and and I think Swarthmore is very similar, highly selective, very intellectual, still supporting a good number of sports teams. So how does that impact the admission process? 
Yeah, well, and and now we do kind of have quotas, right? I mean, we would, they would have a specific number. The um, athletic director would have a, a certain number of slots, if you will, um, that they could utilize to support their teams. And it was still the same. It was it was kind of a similar approach, however, because um, there were a lot of students that they recruited that at some point in that process, they stopped recruiting, right? So they would often uh, talk to athletes, really like the kid, it fits you know, their priorities in terms of their team, and then they would kind of start to go through that process, provide us the transcripts and the scores and more of the information that we needed in terms of that academic profile. And there were some that we just said, you know what, this kid's just not going to make it. Um, so, you know, we would suggest that you kind of take a step back from this one. Um, and then the ones that, that kind of went through that process, um, you know, if we felt that they had the tools that they needed in order to, to thrive at a place like Swarthmore, then welcome aboard. But some of them did not have, would, would not have been admitted, um, through the regular process had it not been for sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's kind of true of, of many places. Um, and even when I was at Drexel, which in terms of, you know, the selectivity was much different, um, there was still that same kind of push for we need, you know, X number of, you know, crew rowers and things of that nature to make sure that we've got a team for next year. And, you know, those would, those would be the things that we would go through committee. And, um, and usually it was a separate committee. Sometimes it was just the dean making those types of decisions. But um, for most of our athletes at Swarthmore, at least, we went through the, the full committee and the full discussion and, uh, and gave them the stamps of, of, impro- of approval for, for that particular team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will say I think I made a coach cry at least once by saying it was just absolutely unacceptable to accept, to take a certain student mm-hmm. because she, she just was not qualified. So, um, you know, not even close. So. Um, yep. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much that's, wrapped it up. I was just going to say, and that's part of why Swarthmore uh, dropped their football team in 2000, is that they just needed such a big group of students to, you know, to support that team. And it was such a big chunk of our already small class that it was just, it was very difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Football teams are big and they have a really big impact. So, all right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Kenan. I really appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. Okay. And thanks to all my guests today. Um, now I want to tell you about our show next week. I'm really excited about this show. Um, and that's because we're going to be having a guest, Rachel Simmons, who's the author of Enough As She Is, a book about how to move girls past impossible standards for success to live happy and healthy lives. Um, the host, Ian Fisher, will be, chock- um, will be chatting with her about how that impacts um, kind of the college admission process or sort of how they survive and hopefully thrive through the college admission process. And this discussion will be followed up by one of our Kindness Matters segments. And this one specifically is going to be on financial aid awards for kindness. So, I mean, honestly, what a great show. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find past shows featuring topics like the value of a liberal arts degree and how to make the most of visiting colleges over the summer. And if you like our show, be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time and is absolutely free. Last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.